Well, welcome everyone to One Life Community Church. Um, it is great to be with you. Um, my name is Rich. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. feels like it's been a while since I've been in this space. We've had such an amazing series with the women in the Bible uh, sermon series and getting to hear all these wonderful people. Our youth director last week. Um, and so it's extra special to be with you. Today, as Brian mentioned earlier, it's Pentecost, and today we are going to look at the story of Pentecost as found in Acts 2. Uh, today, Christians around the world recognize and celebrate this day, although for us, it's not all that well known. We don't think about it the same way we do as Christmas or Easter, though, as uh, Brian mentioned, it commemorates one of the most historic events in Christian history, the beginning, the birth of the church which, fun fact, this year, our church is turning 40 years old, which is pretty cool. Uh, maybe you didn't know that. Um, Greg and I had the opportunity to go out to lunch with our founding pastor this last week. He took us out uh, to the Space Needle, of all places, uh, which was fantastic, looking over the city uh, that we've been um, entrusted to serve and care for for 40 years. Um, so that's a, that's a different thing. We're looking at the very launch of the very first church as it's found in Acts 2. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. The text will also be up on the wall behind me. It goes like this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard about this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 7, Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parinthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and all these other places, parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors of Rome, you've got to point out the Italians, both Jews, converts of Judaism, Christians, Arabs, we hear them, they're hearing and declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, of course, and said, they have had too much wine. Because it was crazy going on there. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just want to recognize your presence here with us right now. You've been with us as we entered into the space. You, you've been with us as we drove or walked here. You, you've been with us in our very breath right now in our worship, in our prayer, in our taking of communion. And we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you um, would just help us to hear the things you want us to hear. Help me to communicate the words you want me to communicate. And, and even beyond that, help us to know what to do with these things, how to apply them, how to move with your Spirit. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and of course, the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the interesting things about this day in church history is that it's on this day that God sends his promised Holy Spirit. 
Pentecost was this Jewish holiday that came 50 days after the Passover. And for thousands of years, Israel had been celebrating this holiday established by God as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. It was a celebration of the hope of God's salvation. And what's cool is that Jesus' death and resurrection coincides with the Passover. And even cooler is seeing the whole purpose of the Passover ultimately is pointing to Jesus. The victory over death that came from the resurrection not only freed his followers from the slavery of death, but it also ushered in his new kingdom. In other words, Passover completely describes the victory of Jesus, which is a completely different sermon. I'm just telling you that right now. Uh, Today, we are looking at the coming of the Holy Spirit, which coincides with the day of Pentecost. This is the backdrop that God chose to give here in Acts 2. Pentecost was this wonderful, like, joyful party celebration at the end of the harvest. It was a response from the people praising God for the fruit in the harvest that came to God's people in the land that God had promised them, which is a pretty cool setting for this story. A couple quick text notes of context. One is, we don't know who all is present. The text basically says they were all there together in one place. It doesn't give details. We assume by the language it's referring to the same people who are in the chapter before, which includes the disciples, includes Mary, um, who we've looked at a bunch over the last couple weeks. We also don't know where they are. The text basically mentions a house, mentions Jerusalem, also says they're outside for all to see and hear. Um, so that's not something super clear, and we actually don't know what they are doing. It doesn't say, you know, they are having some coffee, it doesn't say they're praying or worshiping or eating or playing soccer, as they probably would have been, or watching The Last David Letterman. We don't know. Um, what is safe to say, though, is that they weren't doing anything wrong. This didn't happen because they were all just having a big sin fest. And we also can have a safety in saying that they didn't do something, or it doesn't mention anything that they did to make this event happen. Okay, so, so there's not some magic action, there's not this phrase or prayer, there's not this kind of open sesame that set this thing in motion that we can just take and say, let's reproduce this. So, context-wise, history-wise, surrounding the story, that's, that's what we have. What I want to do for our time is make a few observations about what's going on in the story, and then I want us to reflect upon the specific kind of images of the Holy Spirit given in the text, both for us to get a sense of how the Spirit moves, but then also to reflect upon what the Spirit is doing in and around us and how we respond. So, first observation is that the Holy Spirit is the literal fruit of God's kingdom. So, like Israel, enjoying the bountiful harvest in the land that God had promised, followers of Jesus enjoy the Holy Spirit in the kingdom of Jesus. So Jesus' literal physical resurrection meant that a fundamental change had occurred. It meant that Death actually had been conquered, and the coming of the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2 is the fruit of that victory. And they're celebrating. When Jesus conquered death, the fruit of that is God's absolute commitment to the followers of Jesus that they will never be alone. Even in death, we'll never be alone. And the Holy Spirit will always be with us, and that should completely change 
the way we look at life. The second thing we see is that at Pentecost, it signals this broken barrier between humanity and God by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In verses 2 and 3, the text says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, something like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to be these tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. That is just crazy just to even try to picture what that was like. But throughout the Hebrew Bible, God continually demonstrated his presence with things like wind and fire. And the reason was is because no one could actually bear to be in the presence of God. So God was always experienced through some kind of veil. Example, a night pillar of fire was with Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. Or Moses has this crazy talking fire bush, right? For this group of people raised in Israel, this would have been a clear indication of the presence of God. The surprising thing was, though, that the Spirit of God came to rest on every single person there. This had never happened before. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would rest on certain people at certain times to accomplish certain tasks. The Spirit came and went depending on the purposes of God, and it also depended on the person's response to God. The Spirit of God never just rested with people in general because there was a barrier between God and the world. When the Holy Spirit rested on all of the followers of Jesus, this was a sign of the fruit of the victory of Jesus, and a fundamental change had occurred when Jesus broke the power of death. The change meant that the barrier between God and humanity was now broken. It meant that God was making a commitment to permanently dwell with the followers of Jesus, regardless of who they are and what they're doing. It was solely based on their decision to follow Jesus. So if we're followers of Jesus, then the barrier is broken, and we are guaranteed to always have God with us no matter what we're doing, no matter where we are, Even when we're messing up, God is always with us. And as you can imagine, this should completely change the way we look at things. And this touches on what Aaron taught us last week. Do you believe this? Do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day life? It's a good question because living this reality out changes everything about the way we live and move and have our being. As Aaron challenged us last week, if you're a follower of Christ, stop living like you're not. Stop living as if you're alone and you have to do this all by yourself. Stop living as if the Holy Spirit is not with you wherever you go. The only thing we need to remember is that the followers of Jesus did nothing to gain the Holy Spirit They didn't seek out the Holy Spirit. They didn't have this crazy, incredible spiritual life. There's just a bunch of normal people that made a decision to follow Jesus. And based solely on that decision, God caused the Holy Spirit to rest on them. It's the coolest part of being a part of the kingdom of God. The promise of a permanent partnership with the God of the universe. And this is initiated at Pentecost. Third thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit not only indicates this broken barrier between God and humanity, 
It also shows us that Jesus' victory also broke the barrier that divides just humanity in general. If you look back in the scriptures back in Genesis, there's this story called the Tower of Babel. And all of the people at the time on earth spoke the same language and decided that they were going to build a tower that reached into heaven. It was basically a way of saying, we got everything we need, we don't need God. Have you ever lived in such a way that basically says, I can do it on on my own, I don't need God? These people thought they could literally make a way to heaven on their own, that they could create a paradise, if you will, on earth. And God responds to this by confusing their language. And ever since, language has been a problem, a barrier for us. To this day, we have a problem. Take your closest friends. You know what it's like to have conversations, and you don't always communicate well. My father-in-law, I love him dearly, um, but I have conversations with him, and my wife, Jen, will later have to kind of translate what just went down there, right? Uh, And my wife, as much as I love her, there are times where she communicates to me, and I think I understand, and I come to find out a complete opposite understanding of what she intended. Sounds like some of you might be able to relate to this. But here in Acts, the very first act of the Holy Spirit is to break down that communication barrier. People were able to hear the message of salvation clearly in their native language. Jesus broke the barriers between us and God, and he was also breaking down the barriers that we have with each other, which is interesting. And just another thing to think about with regards to communication, this story is amazing. And and when we look at it, we tend to get ourselves so focused on this whole speaking in tongues thing, which is amazing, right? Don't get me wrong. Whenever God empowers people to communicate words of worship and praise in a language that's not their own between God and this person, whenever that happens, it's amazing. And this isn't just happening for one person. This happened for every single person there. And because of it, we get really attentive to the speaking in tongues thing. But what we see, if you look at the text, and we look at Walter Brueggemann and other uh, theologians suggest that if you look at the text, what you find is actually the focus is much more on the hearing than the speaking. And if you look at the scripture, for example, verse 6, it says this, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 8 then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Verse 14, give ear to my words, which literally means or listen carefully to what I say. And verse 37, again, when the people heard this, they were out, they were cut of the heart and said to Peter in response to the apostles, what shall we do? And so you can see, right? We get caught up in this. We want to speak in tongues. We wonder why we've never spoken tongues and all these kinds of things because it's this miraculous thing. But it's important for us to remember that the clear kind of key to communication is not simply talking or speaking. It's the combination of speaking and listening. And we've all been in a place where we were talking perfectly clear English to someone who speaks English, who come to find out didn't understand a word we said and we don't even have different languages we're speaking the same languages we might even go up to them and say are you even listening to me because they don't understand acts 2 doesn't actually say that the people speaking in tongues are speaking specific languages of all the different people in these groups 
It says that the different people groups heard things in their own native language. So what you really see is there's two miraculous things going on. One is the empowering of the gift of the Spirit to speak words of praise and worship to God in a different tongue. And the second is the empowering work of the Spirit, causing people to have this divine kind of hearing, translating abilities, which again goes back to this idea that in order for us to connect with God in any form or fashion, it happens because of the Holy Spirit working in us, whether we're aware of it or not. I think that's fascinating. The last observation, and in my opinion, the most important for us today is that by God making himself accessible to the followers of Jesus, he's also making himself accessible to the whole world. Which means we need to make ourselves and our church accessible to others. The resurrection of Jesus breaks down barriers between us and God, between followers of Jesus, and we can also see that God intends for the barrier to come down between the church and the community surrounding the church. Verses 9 through 11 give this big list of these different countries that had representatives in this place hearing the quote-unquote mighty deeds of God in their native languages. And many of these people, as a result, came to Christ. At the end of chapter 2, it says somewhere around 3,000 people chose to follow Christ. And the point is that at that time, if you wanted to follow God, if you wanted to hear about God, then you basically had to become... Jewish and learn Hebrew, but now the mighty deeds of God were miraculously being heard in everyone's native language, their native tongue. We do this today. We think really the way to understand the Bible, we need to know Hebrew, we need to know Greek. If you know Latin, that helps. Of course, Italian is, always makes things better. Uh, but no matter, no matter what you know, if you want true understanding, it will always be impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that the Holy Spirit's doing here in Acts 2 is that the message of grace is being made clear by moving believers out of their comfort zone of their own language and into the comfort zone of others and their native languages in order to reach the community. What that means is that from the very beginning of the launch of the church, the Holy Spirit intends for the church to move out of its comfort zone in order to make the message clear to the community around. And that's part of our vision as a church, to be rooted and serving and connecting with our community. And that doesn't happen by itself. It requires an understanding. It requires investment and care. It requires presence in a community. And as you can imagine, it should shape the way we go about being the church. What we see here in our text is that the very first work of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was to open up the church, to open up worship and praise and giving thanks in a way that made it easy for people everywhere to join in and connect and participate. So with that, with these observations, how do you think our church is doing at reaching out of its comfort zones in order to invite our community to worship and connect? Maybe another way to put it is, when you think of our church, One Life, would you say our church primarily functions 
as an inward mindset, it's all about us, or an outward mindset, it's about reaching others. And the reason I ask this to you is because I'm actually asking this of you as individuals, because you are part of this church. By asking it generally of the church, I'm asking it specifically of you. Are you, as a member of this body, reaching out of your comfort zone in order to invite the community to connect with God? Are you inward or outward thinking when it comes to sharing your faith? Now, I want you to hold those thoughts. Um, They're not simple yes or no answers. Um, But what I want you to do is hold those as I make a few observations about the Holy Spirit. Because what I want to do is is look at a number of pictures of the Holy Spirit to kind of help us get a sense of how the Holy Spirit moves. Um, Before I do that, I want to make something really clear. One Life Community Church, we are an Assemblies of God church. And what that means is that we absolutely believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God can still and currently continues to empower people with charismatic gifts, be it the gift of healing or prophecy, or in this case, speaking in tongues, you name it. We believe that the the Spirit is fully at work today. But the question is, what does that look like 2015, what does it look like in our lives? And the truth is, Scripture doesn't give all these specifics. It gives a lot of images and pictures because you really can't say what it is in words. And so what I want us to do is just take some time to ponder four different kind of images that we see in Scripture, think about what they tell us about the Spirit, and then help us think about what that means in our lives. So the first picture of the Spirit that we see in Scripture is the word spirit itself, which means breath. Both in Hebrew and um, Greek, the translation of the word spirit is the word breath. And the spirit is God's breath of life. And you know something's alive because it's breathing. In the Old Testament, this is completely universal. This is an understanding. Human beings and all other living creatures, for that matter, they're no different in that respect. They're all alive and have a breath to breathe because of the Spirit of God. And there's, this is the ultimate gift of grace. They did nothing to deserve it, nor did you. And we can see this in Job 34. It says this, If God should take back his Spirit to himself and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together and all mortals return to dust. Life exists only because God, the source of life, shares his spirit with us. Bottom line. And in the New Testament, at Pentecost, for example, we see the spirit as this breath of new life from God. Renewing and enhancing, giving uh, delivery of life after death. On one occasion after the resurrection, Jesus is with his disciples and John tells us, in John 20, 22, that Jesus breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's this actual acting out of a parable. The new life, risen Christ, shares with his disciples this breath of life and actually breathes the Spirit breath into them. So, when we think of this summary of the breath, what we think of, and we should picture is this breath of life that's the Spirit of God breathing into our dead and dying selves, making us fully alive with the new life of God. 
causing us to live and move in a different way according to his will. And what I mean by that is, as we breathe in the life and spirit of God, we start to breathe and care about things that God cares about. So the question I have for you then is, have you ever encountered the Holy Spirit entering your story like the very air you breathe, essentially giving you a renewed passion to share this eternal life with others? Have you ever experienced the Spirit moving in you like breath? Now, the second image that we see comes in this story of Pentecost, and that is this idea of wind. Everything started at Pentecost when the house where the disciples were gathered was filled with this crazy sound of great driving wind. It was the arrival of the Spirit. And again, that word Spirit in the languages of the Bible not only means and is translated with breath, but it's also translated as wind. And this is illustrated wonderfully in Ezekiel in that great vision of the Valley of Dry Bones where the Spirit of God is depicted of this kind of wind that enters into these lifeless bodies, becoming in them this breath of life. So they rise to new life. And it's the same idea here. When the early Christians talked about the Spirit, they couldn't help but think of breath and wind because that's what those words meant then. So when we think about the Spirit as wind, how does this help us understand the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus, in this little parable, uses wind as a picture of the Spirit. In John 3, uh, verse 8, it says this, The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And we've all experienced wind, right? It's, It's this kind of invisible, mysterious force, but you can see the effects of it. It's this movement which we cannot predict or control, and it seems to come out of nowhere, which affects things and carries things along with it in this movement. And it's the same thing with the Spirit. We need to know we cannot control the Holy Spirit. We can't catch it and try to direct it into the direction we want it to go. And sadly, the church as a whole has tried to do that. We try to say, here's what the Spirit's doing. We're going to do it, and we make it happen. It's almost like trying to put it in a bottle like a genie, and we know how to distribute it whenever we want. And we do that because our culture is very much addicted to control. And if there's anything this story tells us, is that we are not in control of the Holy Spirit. Nor are we in control of what happens to us or the people that we encounter, or the situations that come our way, or the tragedies that can overtake us, or the unexpected opportunities that come our way. We have no control over those things, and we can't predict them. And that's the case with the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes the Spirit comes and forces himself onto our attention because we wouldn't move on our own. So sometimes it pushes us and directs us to a different place. So to summarize this second picture, when our lives lack direction, have you ever lacked direction? Or or when they're so firmly stuck in the wrong direction, then the wind cannot predict or control what's coming in, but comes in, sometimes as a gentle breeze, sometimes as a hurricane, always a movement. Sweeps in, catches us up, and takes us someplace new. 
So the question is, have you ever encountered the Holy Spirit entering into your story like the wind, moving you, directing you, taking you towards people or places that you wouldn't normally go on your own? Now, two more pictures. The third picture of the Spirit, which is very common in the Scriptures, is the idea of the Spirit as water. And uh, we see this all the time, the image of being filled with the Spirit. is very frequent in the New Testament. Kind of this idea of being vessels filled to the brim with essentially the liquid of the Spirit or being baptized with the Spirit. It's literally being kind of plunged into this bath of Spirit or engulfed, if you will. But a lot of times it's this idea of the Spirit being poured out almost like a shower or like the rain. And Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, says that's what's happening when God pours out his Spirit. It's the picture of God pouring the Spirit down on us like rain from heaven. And here in Seattle, we know something about rain, right? And what it does when it falls and brings life and bears fruit in our city. I just recently got to go to New York, and in doing so, I took a little visit up to the Catskills, which is a beautiful area of New York. Um, but I was surprised by, one, how many trees were there and how not green any of them were. Everything looked kind of dead, even though it wasn't. It was the weirdest thing. Mountains covered with, like, gray trees. And it made me really appreciate where I live and how lush and alive it is. And that's the picture that Paul has in mind when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you name it. These qualities of the Christian life that are fruits that we bear when the Spirit waters the soil of our lives and vitalizes us and makes us fertile and fruitful for God. So when you take this picture of the Spirit being like water... We think of it as the spirit that comes into our lives like a gentle, refreshing rain to water our parched lives and to make those areas that are barren blossom and fruitful again. So then the question is, have you ever experienced the Holy Spirit entering your story in that way? Like a refreshing, life-giving rain one that replenishes and revitalizes areas or passions that maybe had been dead or dying or maybe you never even knew about, and it's finally reaching and something's changing. It's like that garden when you plant the seeds and you're waiting and you're watering, and then all of a sudden you start seeing something come alive. The fourth and final picture of the Spirit here that I want us to look at comes again in our text today, and that's the picture of the Spirit as fire. At Pentecost, this house is filled with something, the description of this great noise, this great hurricane, and the other things the disciples are trying to put words on is this flame of fire shaped something like a tongue resting on each of them. Can you imagine trying to put words to something like this? And I think if you were to try to get on Google and try to find an image, you'd be amazed <laughs> at the diversity of people trying to depict this in art. But I think the best way to understand the Spirit as fire is to think of it as God's passionate love. The Spirit brings God's love into our lives, and God's love is not just some kind of bland, 
benevolence. It's not just like, I hope you have a nice day. It's passionate. And God's love is a flame, and it burns with passionate concern. And as fire does, it sets other things ablaze, right? It's contagious, and it burns into our lives. It kindles a flame, a love in each of us. And it reveals, right? Fire reveals things. It sets us on fire with love for God and to love the things that God loves. And in case we um, just dive into that picture and think of it as a very nice thing, which it is, it's important to remember that there's another part to fire, and that is pain. Pain is involved in fire. Fire can hurt and it can purge. And passionate love involves pain as well. The English word passion literally has a double meaning of intense love and intense suffering entangled together. And those of us who are married probably have experienced something of that. Intense love and intense suffering. It's passion. And the image of the Spirit as fiery passion is important for us because what affects so many of us in our culture is apathy. This attitude in which we don't really care. We don't really commit. There's nothing really worth devoting ourselves to, let alone being passionate about. And it's not hard to see that in our culture and maybe even in our own lives. And so when we think of the Spirit as fire, we need to think about it of this idea of constantly needing the Spirit essentially to, to warm our cold hearts with the flame of God's love to rekindle in us, if you will, a passion without which life doesn't feel worth living. The fire of devotion to God and the fire of passionate concern that goes for those around us and outside of us that we actually care about. And so then the last question I have for you as we think of these images is have you ever encountered the Holy Spirit entering your story like a fire setting ablaze a passion to live and move in a way that you wouldn't move and live on your own. One that causes you to care and to respond, to do as the scriptures, to love others better than yourself. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And I hope that as you wrestle with these images... You tie those things up, those images, and try to hold on to those along with how am I going about my day-to-day? How is the Spirit working? Am I moving inward or am I moving outward? How is the Spirit doing? Because I want you to see this movement of the Spirit happened before the fellowship conversation later on in Acts 2. Right? The, The initiation of the Spirit started with outward movement, not inward. And so I want you to be thinking about how is the Spirit moving in and around me today? Now, the scripture that we looked at ends with two responses. Acts 12, uh, 2, 12 through 13 says this. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? In verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. In other words, some, when the Spirit came and empowered them and started doing all these amazing things, Responded with wonder, responded with interest and pressing in. Others scoffed, disbelief, walked away. 
And so the questions I have for you, and I'd love for you to take your connection cards out if you have them. You could flip it over in the back. I have three questions, and I would really love to hear from each one of you, um, even if it's just one of these questions. Um, Question number one, when it comes to the idea of the Holy Spirit in your life, moving you out of your own comfort zone towards others and their comfort zones, how do you respond? With wonder and interest or with disregard and disbelief? And I want to be clear, this is not an easy... <laughs> I wrote that question, I was like, that's going to be... Uh, it's easy. It's not an easy question. How do you respond? Number two, what role, if at all, would you say the Holy Spirit plays in your day-to-day life? Like Aaron said, do you believe this? Are you living in such a way that believes this? And how does that look in your day-to-day life? Stop acting as if the Holy Spirit is not with you. And number three, of the four images of the Spirit, which there's more, but of the four, breath, wind, water, and fire, which have you experienced the least and which have you experienced the most? And I would love to hear from you on that. Um, uh, I really do believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well. I really believe that the Holy Spirit is moving us, not just as individuals, but as a church, to be thinking about these things. As we, next week, we're going to be looking at Trinity Sunday and then moving into the book of Luke. And I think we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot of echoes of these movements. Um, but what I really want is for us all personally to be hearing the movements of the Spirit in us as well. So um, my blessing and prayer for you is to hold these and to think and to ask. I'm going to close this in prayer and then we'll end with one last song. Holy Spirit, we do, as Brian has this Holy Spirit candle lit and we have fire right now in our presence, ask you to move in us, both individually and corporately as a church. We ask that you would move in a way that we can experience something of the fire of your spirit giving us passion, something of the water of your spirit nourishing and and bringing life to those areas that have been barren. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enter into our world and our lives in such a way that's like wind that might lift us up or take us or direct us in places that you want us to go that we would never go on our own. And God, just as we literally breathe a breath, be reminded that you are with us wherever we go. Spirit, we have so much to give praise and worship to you for um, our very gift of grace of life. And as we live and move and have our being, help us not to act as if you're not with us. Move us like you did in Pentecost, however you want, that we don't respond with disbelief and scoffing, but um, being amazed and perplexed and wanting to know more. And be with us as we worship. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.